Hello, and welcome to The Hungry Historian, the history podcast with a culinary twist. As always, I'm Chef Money, and once again, I'll be your personal purveyor of pastime and palatable provisions. September 5th and 6th will mark the 50th anniversary of the Munich Massacre, the event that caused ABC correspondent Jim McKay to remark, the piece of what had been called the Serene Olympics was shattered just before dawn this morning. Around 4.30 in the morning on September 5th, eight tracksuit-clad members of Black September, a faction of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, headed towards the Olympic Village. Carrying duffel bags, inside which contained a change of clothes, assault rifles, pistols and grenades, and with the assistance from some Canadian athletes who were sneaking back to their own apartment, were able to scale the two-meter-high chain-link fence and make their way to the complex at 31 Connolly Strauss, which, among others, housed the team from Israel. Using stolen keys, they were able to enter two of the Israeli apartments, where they would initially take 11 of the athletes, coaches, and staff hostage. What transpired over the next 18-plus hours with the eyes of the world watching live, would both overshadow the Olympics themselves, as well as impact global security for the years to follow. But why did this occur? And how did it happen? Before I attempt to answer those questions, I'd like to first introduce our recipe for this episode. Usually, I try to find a recipe that has a link to our topic and give it a fun little name. While our recipe today does indeed tie into our episode, I felt that giving it a clever moniker would kind of be in poor taste. So with that said, let's go over the ingredients required to make your own somber shakshuka. Ingredients-wise, you're going to need three tablespoons of extra virgin olive oil, one large onion, halved and thinly sliced, one large red bell pepper, seeded and thinly sliced, at least three cloves of garlic, minced, a teaspoon of cumin, a teaspoon of paprika, an eighth of a teaspoon of cayenne, or a little bit more if you like it spicy, one can of whole plum tomatoes and their juice. Now, when you add these to your mixture, you're gonna wanna break them up with your spatula or your spoon um, just to give it a bit more texture. And it kind of beats having to clean up, you know, trying to roughly chop a can of plum tomatoes. You'll need three quarters of a teaspoon of kosher salt, or as needed, a quarter teaspoon of ground black pepper, or as needed, five ounces of feta cheese, crumbled, which is about one and a quarter cups worth of feta. You can feel free to use more feta if you want. This is just the recommended dosage. You'll also need six large eggs, and for garnish, you'll want some chopped cilantro and some hot sauce. First and foremost, I'm not nearly well-read enough to give an insightful and educated stance on the Middle East. Any information in relation to the Israel and Palestine struggle that we'll talk about here are just simply the historical facts. Furthermore, although every source I read for this most notably Munich 1972 by David Clay Large, uh, refers to the Palestinians involved as terrorists. I've made the decision to refer to them just simply as the Palestinians, the kidnappers, or Black September. Um, <laughs> this isn't a stance by any means. Uh, I just like to think of the old adage of, you know, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Uh, so with that in mind, 
I'm really going to try to refrain from using the term terrorist unless it comes up to like, you know, a quote saying like the terrorist regime or the terrorist attack. Heading into 1972, the West German Olympic Organization Committee had hoped to discard Germany's unenviable militaristic image and help to erase the stain that the Nazis had left behind. Aside from the horrors of the Second World War, this would also mark the second time that a German city had hosted the Olympics, and the organizers were very weary of any and all images that, well, could be associated with the 1936 Berlin Games. The swastikas had been replaced with the Olympic flag. The colors red, black, and purple, all which had been associated with the German Nazi and Imperial past, were all but officially banned. Even the facilities and security measures would be remarkably different. Whereas Berlin's Olympic village had been located on a military base many miles away from the main Olympic complex, Munich's lay within walking distance of the Olympic Stadium. The Olympic Village in Munich did have a chain-link fence that ran around its perimeter, but said fence was only six and a half feet tall, and it had no menacing coils of barbed wire running along the top. I guess it was maybe a little too close to the images of those Nazi concentration camps from 30 years ago? Sure, the fence was patrolled by guards on foot and in vehicles, but after the first two or three days of competition, these patrols were extremely scaled back especially at night. One Olympic security guard even noted, quote, nothing happens at night, end quote. Now, the planners of the Munich Games had a pretty good reason to worry about and want to distance themselves from their Nazi past. You know, just besides not wanting to be Nazis. I mean, it was Munich itself that had not only been the birthplace of Nazism, but it was also the site of Hitler's first attempt to seize power. This would be the infamous Beer Hall Putsch in 1923, and Munich was also the birthplace of the mustachioed man himself. But you know what? For the first week or so of the Olympics, the organizers had pulled it off. A visiting reporter for Ramperts Magazine, uh, an American publication, raved after opening day, quote, Then, in 1936, it had been the Teutonic gods of war that were being supplicated, but now... 36 years later, it was to be the milder deities of Mount Olympus as thousands of the world's greatest athletes gathered in gentle Bavarian surroundings to return the Olympic ideal to German soil. End quote. Now, as great as all of this was, it resulted in a very lackadaisical security presence. The security guards, or Ollies, as they were known, wore pastel blue an homage to the Bavarian skies, and they were unarmed. The only thing they carried were walkie-talkies, and they had only really been mainly trained to deal with drunks and ticket fraud. In fact, heading into the Olympics, only the sixth time that Israel had participated, the head of the Israeli delegation, a man named Shmoyl Lalkin, expressed some concerns about the Israeli lodgings to the relevant authorities. See, Lolkin was worried about the lack of an armed presence, that the Israelis were residing in a more isolated area of the village, and that they were located on a ground floor, near a gate. All of this, he believed, would make them susceptible to an outside assault. The German authorities? Ah, 
they assured him that there would be extra security precautions and measures taken. But it's extremely doubtful that any of this ever occurred. But why, why the concern? At the time of the Olympics, Israel was only 24 years old. Tens of thousands of European Jews had headed to Palestine in 1939, which was still under British rule, in order to escape the spreading fear and worry of Nazism. Now, Palestine was a welcoming location, as it had housed the two ancient biblical Hebrew kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And following the war from 1945 to 1948, even more European Jewish would arrive and set up in the UN refugee camps. It wouldn't take long before they got into some conflict with the local Arab population. Britain, who kind of ran Palestine at this time, tried to work out a solution to appease both sides. But they wound up becoming targets themselves from armed groups on either side who demanded their withdrawal. So in 1947, they announced that the following year, 1948, they would withdraw from the area and they would leave it up to the United Nations to handle what would happen there. The United Nations created the Special Committee on Palestine in order to try and broker some peace. Their decision, they announced, was that they were going to divide the area of Palestine into an independent Arab and an independent Jewish state, with Jerusalem, which was significant to both sides, uh, to be managed by a group of international managers. The Jewish population quickly accepted. The Arab population, mm, they did not. So to ensure their state, the Jewish population declared Israel an independent country on May the 14th, 1948. The very next day, they were attacked by five Arab countries, which would eventually end in a ceasefire. Arabs and non-Arabs in the Middle East argued that Israel was not a legitimate country, but Israel was, and still is, backed by the United Kingdom and the United States, thus they maintained a very small and militarily strong democracy. And it's probably a good thing that they have a strong military background, uh, because since their independence, Israel has been in two wars, and in the following year of Munich, 1973, they would once again be attacked on one of the holiest days in the Hebrew faith, Yom Kippur. Fun fact, uh, well, not really fun, but it's a fact, uh, George Sieber was a forensic psychologist who was asked by West German authorities to come up with 26 terrorist scenarios. See, I will have to use the word occasionally. His 21st scenario accurately forecasted armed Palestinians invading the Israeli quarters, killing or taking hostages, demanding the release of prisoners and a plane to fly them out. When he presented this, the Olympic planners balked at this, and five others of his scenario, as an armed guard presence would go against their carefree games image. You know, they didn't want any heavy security. On the evening of September 4th, the Israeli athletes took in a performance of Fiddler on the Roof and then hung out with the cast before returning to the village. Shmoyle Lalkin's 13-year-old son had wanted to go back with the athletes, as he had befriended weightlifter Yosef Romano and wrestler Elysier Halfin, but was denied permission by his father, a move that undoubtedly saved his life. Sometime around five in the morning, Yosef Gutfreund, a wrestling referee, was alerted by a scratching noise at the door of apartment number one, which housed the Israeli coaches and officials. 
Upon investigating, he saw masked men and guns. Thinking quickly, he slammed his six-foot-three, three-hundred-pound frame against the door and yelled, Danger, guys! Terrorists! as a warning. Weightlifting coach Tuvia Sokolovsky, one of the first to realize what was happening, and someone who had experienced their entire family being wiped out during the Holocaust, was quoted as saying, quote, Through the half-open door I saw a man with a black-painted face holding a weapon. At that moment, I knew I had to escape. End quote. Shouting a warning to the others, he then ran to a back room where he smashed the double-paned glass, jumped, somersaulted to the ground, and ran to safety as bullets flew past. Moshe Weinberg, a wrestling coach, fought with the intruders and was shot through the cheek. From there, he was forced to lead them to the other apartments where they could find more hostages. Now, Weinberg led them past apartment number two, telling them that there were no Israelis there, and instead took them to apartment number three, where the weightlifters and the wrestlers were staying. It's believed that he may have done this because he thought that the weightlifters and the wrestlers would maybe have a better chance at subduing the threat. Unfortunately, they would be surprised in their sleep. As the hostages were being marched back to the coach's apartment, Weinberg took this time to attack his captors. He punched one in the jaw so hard that he fractured it, and he slashed another in the throat with a fruit knife, but drew no blood. For his efforts, he received a hail of gunfire and was shot to death. But it did allow one man, Gad Sobari, to escape via an underground parking garage. It was at this point that Yosef Romano also fought back and wounded one of the intruders before he too was shot and killed. It came out in a New York Times article published in 2015 that the Palestinians may have actually mutilated his dead body by castrating him before leaving his body at the feet of the captured as a warning. This is what will happen if you try to escape. Sadly, Romano wouldn't be the only member of his family to be lost because of Munich. Because of his death, both his mother and his brother would later commit suicide in the years to follow. The murders of Romano and Weinberg now left the Palestinians with nine hostages. Yosef Gutfreund, a wrestling referee, Kaat Shur, a sharpshooting coach, Amitsur Shapira, a track and field coach, Andre Spitzer, a fencing master, Yaakov Springer, a weightlifting judge, Elysier Halfin, a wrestler, Mark Slavin, also a wrestler, and two weightlifters, David Berger and Zaev Friedman. Gutfreund, who was the largest of the group, had been tied to a chair with so many restraints that he now resembled a mummy. The other eight were tied at their wrists and ankles and then to one another and sat in groups of four on two beds. Some of them would be beaten to the point of breaking bones in the hours to follow. Those who were not taken by now had escaped and began to spread the word. I should mention that not all Israeli athletes were in the same apartment complex. Female athletes, for instance, were in a separate facility, and those taking part in the nautical events were roughly 900 kilometers away in Kiel. The members of Black September had come from refugee camps spread across Lebanon, Syria, and Jordan. Their name, Black September, came from the September 16, 1970 actions of the country of Jordan. 
Their king, King Hussein, initiated a major military operation against Palestinian Arabs who were occupying parts of his country. Thousands of them would be killed, and thousands more would be expelled. To the survivors, this became known as Black September. The eight members who took part in the Munich attack were Lutif Afif, codenamed Issa, who was the leader, Yusuf Nizal, codenamed Tony, who was the deputy, Afif Ahmed Hamid, codenamed Paolo, Khalid Jawad, codenamed Salah, Ahmed Chikta, codenamed Abu Hala, Mohammed Safdi, codenamed Badrin, Adnan Al-Gashi, codenamed Dinawi, and Jamal Al-Gashi, codenamed Samir. All those last members were all junior members, and Adnan Al-Gashi and Jamal Al-Gashi were either cousins or uncle and nephew. Latif Afif, Yusuf Nizal, and another unnamed member of Black September had actually been in Munich for weeks leading up to the kidnapping. They had even gained employment in the Olympic Village. All of this so that they could gain access to the apartment complex beforehand in order to scout it out. In fact, Yusuf Nizal had even been seen by a Uruguayan official less than 24 hours before the kidnapping, but because the official had seen him around the village before, he was like, oh, this is just a worker, and didn't think anything of it. With news of the kidnapping beginning to become more public, world leaders began to weigh in on the escalating situation. The Israeli Prime Minister, Golda Meir, appealed to other countries to take action on their behalf. Quote, if we, Israel, should give in, then no Israeli anywhere in the world will feel that his life is safe. It's blackmail of the worst kind. End quote. King Hussein of Jordan, the only Arab leader to speak out and condemn the actions, declared that it was, quote, a savage crime against civilization perpetrated by sick minds. End quote. I mean, seeing as how his actions led to Black September kind of being formed, it's kind of no surprise that he didn't really, you know, support the kidnapping. Even tricky Dick Nixon debated between declaring a national day of mourning in America or attending the funerals for the athletes in person. In the end, he agreed with his security advisor, Henry Kissinger, and pressed the United Nations to take steps against international terrorism. The Palestinian members of Black September demanded the release of 234 Palestinians and non-Arabs who had been jailed in Israel, along with two West German insurgents currently being held in West Germany. To demonstrate how serious they were in their demands, they threw Weinberg's body out of the window and to the ground below. Israel's response was immediate and absolute. There would be no negotiations. This was their official policy, as negotiations gave incentive for further attacks. Hence, Golda Meir's speech to other leaders. Needless to say, given their whole recent history with the Jewish faith, this was an incredibly difficult political position for the West Germans to be in. Throughout the negotiation process, the West German authorities made numerous attempts to try and pay for the Israelis' freedom, offering the Palestinians a seemingly endless amount of money. The Palestinians, however, viewed this as an insult to them and their goal. Quote, money means nothing to us. Our lives mean nothing to us. End quote. 
And the West German authorities weren't the only ones attempting to negotiate with the Palestinians either. Advisors to the Arab League and an Egyptian member of the IOC had also tried to win concessions from the kidnappers, but to no avail. Mind you, five extensions to the deadline were given, so perhaps this was a minor positive to come out of these negotiations? Elsewhere, life in the games went on. In fact, the Olympics wouldn't stop until 12 hours after the first murder had occurred. Not only were the Olympics still going on during this whole hostage situation, but it took hours for a squad of West German police officers to finally be dispatched to the village. And when they did get dispatched, there were only 38 of them sent. They arrived dressed as ollies or in athletic tracksuits and carried machine pistols, and some were even wearing military-style helmets. So they don't really want to, you know, upset the image of the Olympics going on. So they make these guys dress up as the security guards and as athletes. But they're like, hey, you know what? We're going to throw these old-school World War II German-style helmets on you and give you machine pistols because, you know, no one's not going to notice you being a cop as long as you're wearing a tracksuit, obviously, because athletes also carry machine pistols. Now, these were mainly German border police, But Heinz Hansen, uh, a Munich police officer who was present and later appeared in the documentary One Day in September, confirmed that there were definitely regular police there, most who had little to no experience in combat, let alone hostage rescue. Now, the West German police had planned to crawl down the vent shafts and kill the terrorists, so they took up positions on the roof of the Olympic Village and awaited the go-ahead by code word, Sunshine but they must have forgotten that they were at the Olympics. Not only are the Olympics one of the most televised events in the world, even back in the 70s, but by this time, news had leaked out that there was a hostage situation. So pretty much every international news team was feeding a live broadcast around the world. The whole world was watching. You know who else was watching? The Palestinians. There's footage of one of the Palestinians staring at a location where a cop had been stationed six meters away from him. I mean, this is just one of the stupidest decisions I've ever seen. It just reminds me of like all the operations uh, that, you know, they'd show on CNN about like America and Iraq. And it's like, well, this is what's going to happen. We're going to send in Navy SEALs and the Marines here. It's like, does do people in Iraq not get CNN? Why are you telling your strategy to fucking journalists? Needless to say that the head of Black September, Issa, threatened to kill two hostages for this intrusion unless the police got the hell out. So the police retreated. With their brilliant plan being foiled, the West German negotiators demanded direct contact with the hostages. They wanted to perform a welfare check as they said to the Palestinians. So, the Palestinians allowed Andre Spitzer, who spoke fluent German, and Rayat Shor, who was the senior member of the Israelis captured, to have a brief conversation with the West German negotiators while they were standing on the second floor window. If you watch this, which you can go on YouTube and see a lot of these highlights, you will see that they had two guns aimed at them in the entire time. And when Spitzer went to answer one of the questions, he was hit with the butt end of a rifle and dragged away. All of this happening on news cameras. 
I remember hearing that the Vietnam War was the first TV war. In other words, everything that the American public was able to see uh, from news channels and newsreels was something that had happened within the last 24 hours, which was something unlike the Korean War or World War II, which you know would bring newsreels home uh, usually sometimes like weeks after the events, and they were highly edited. This is one thing that led to American support for the Vietnam War obviously waning is because they could see you know, American troops burning down villages of uh, supposedly innocent people. So at this point in history, having a live feed for an international incident is, you know, it's still in its very newborn stages. Um, you had people like sneaking in to try to act as hostage negotiators. You had uh, American uh, members of journalists um who were constantly like trying to uh, push further into the uh, quarantined areas and sanctioned off. It's kind of like the Wild West when you actually go back and see a lot of the footage uh, from the Munich Olympics and the, obviously the hostage situation. It just really shows that as a society, we've always kind of had a morbid fascination with events of terror and tragedy. The Minister of the German Interior and the Mayor of the Olympic Village were then allowed into the apartments for a face-to-face -face with the hostages. They were said to be moved by the dignity that the Israelis held themselves to and seemed almost resigned to their fate. I mean, maybe that's because they just saw how well Chief Wiggum and the goddamn Springfield Police Department were handling things. If I had just seen the people who were going to try to save me put their entire strategy out on live TV for my captors to witness, I'd be shaking my head and, you know, be like, well... I guess I had a good run. When they emerged from the apartment, the two German politicians reported back to West German authorities that there were maybe only four or five Palestinians in the apartment. Now, this is something that was taken as a definitive and would become extremely costly later. The hostages had told the West Germans that the Palestinians may be open to flying to an Arab country provided strict guarantees for their safety were made by the West German government and wherever they landed. If they were able to go out and fly to, say, another country, they could take the Israelis with them, feel a little more safe, and continue their negotiations. So at 6 p.m., they decided that they wanted to fly to Cairo in order to continue these negotiations. So West German authorities feign agreement to Cairo, despite the Egyptian prime minister telling them that they did not want to become involved. From there, two Bell UH-1 helicopters, uh, Huey helicopters from uh, Vietnam War fame, were to transport the Israelis and the Palestinians to the nearby NATO airfield at Furstenfeldbruck. Now, the Palestinians had wanted to go to the international airport at Rheim, um, which is now Munich Rheim airfield, but they were convinced by the authorities that Furstenfeldbruck would be more practical. So ahead of the two helicopters that would carry the Palestinians and the Israelis, a third helicopter headed to the airfield that carried the authorities. Now, they would arrive there before the others, and they had ulterior motives for using the NATO airfield. An ambush. And it's with the authorities planning an ambush at Furstenfeldbruck that I'm going to stop this episode. I really want to try to keep each episode around the 30-minute mark. This one's definitely going to balloon to about an hour. So, yeah, let's just uh, knock it off here and just come back tomorrow for the exciting conclusion of the Munich Massacre. Until then, cheers. Cheers.